You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Congratulations, Michelle Wolf. First loved your HBO special, Caught Nice Lady on a Recent Flight, and I haven't laughed that hard on an airplane since someone asked me to change seats so he could sit with his chiropractor. Because you never know when you're going to need one of those emergency in-flight adjustments. Wolf, of course, is now famous, the most famous comedian in America, at least today, in the world, arguably, thanks to her performance at the White House Correspondents Associated dinner on Saturday night. For the record, and unsurprisingly, I thought her set was brave, daring, ova-e, not ballsy, balls are timid, vulnerable things, but ova-e, and mostly important, fucking hilarious. Wolf was up there being hilarious, but also speaking truth to power. She called Trump's bought and paid for liars, staffers, who were in the room, she called them liars to their lying faces. And, you know, if I was up there, if I got that gig, I would have stood there for 20 minutes screaming, you fucking liars, over and over and over again. But Wolf did it with jokes. She wrapped it all up in funny fucking jokes the whole time. 20 minutes of killer jokes. And if you're wondering why her set is so controversial with media figures, it is not what Wolf said or didn't say about Sarah Huckabee's Sanders. She slammed Sanders for lying, not looking. It was this. You guys are obsessed with Trump. Did you used to date him? Because you pretend like you hate him, but I think you love him. I think what no one in this room wants to admit is that Trump has helped all of you. He couldn't sell steaks or vodka or water or college or ties or Eric. (laughs) But he has helped you. He's helped you sell your papers and your books and your TV. You helped create this monster and now you're profiting off of him. And if you're going to profit off of Trump, you should at least give him some money because he doesn't have any. (laughs) Trump is so broke. He grabs pussies because he thinks there might be loose change in them. Wolf went after the media. Okay, she went after everyone. She roasted everyone in the room. Republicans, Democrats, the media, and of course, administration officials, which anyone could have predicted that that would happen. It's possible this was all an elaborate setup job. Whatever Wolf said, however benign, some Trumper on the podium in the room was going to find a way to take elaborate offense because that is what they do. That is their shtick. The president of the United States can say and do the most offensive things And if you look at them funny, they're on the floor in the fetal position, sobbing. But what really, again, set the media off wasn't what Wolf said about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Reporters are like cops and firemen, gallows, humor out the ass. Can you imagine what reporters say to each other about Sarah Huckabee Sanders when she isn't in the room and the camera and the mics are off? Wolf had the courage to say that shit to her face. Nope. But that's not what bunched panties. What bunched panties was Wolf slamming the media for its complicity in the rise of Trump. Trump was clearly a danger to our democracy during the election, but he was great ratings and good for the bottom line, which is why we saw so fucking much of him on TV, unedited live video feeds from his hate rallies. 
It's why we saw so much of him during the campaign, so much more than we saw of any of his rivals for the GOP nomination, and so much more than we saw of Hillary Clinton during the general election campaign. And we'll call out the media and the way it continues to shove Trump down all of our throats and up all of our orifices. The head of CNN, Jeff Zucker, said it was a mistake to air unedited Trump rallies and recognized that it amounted to free political advertising, hundreds of millions of dollars worth during the primary and general election. But CNN continues to air Trump's little ego-boosting, get-me-to-a-red-state, ill-douchey-style rallies today. And, you know, returning to the whole somebody slammed somebody for their looks, if Wolf went after anyone for their looks, it was men. Mitch McConnell isn't here tonight. He had a prior engagement. He's finally getting his neck circumcised. <laughs> Mazel. Paul Ryan also couldn't make it. Of course, he's already been circumcised. Unfortunately, while they were down there, they also took his balls. <laughs> yeah, bye, Paul. Great acting, though, in that video. Now, Republicans are easy to make fun of. You know, it's like shooting fish in a Chris Christie. Okay, two men for their looks, one man for his ballessness and uselessness. And speaking of Trump and Trump rallies, he had one on Saturday night during the White House Correspondents Association dinner, just like he did last year. And when he asked if there were any Hispanics in the room, there were loud, audible boos from the crowd. And Trump said nothing. So please, outrage right-wingers, tell me again that it was rude of Michelle Wolf to call Trump a racist and to lay into Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Kellyanne Conway for carrying water, for lying lies, for this racist motherfucker in the Oval Office. Oh, but that's not how the game is played. When Sarah Huckabee Sanders lies from the podium to the whole country or lies to an individual reporter one-on-one, -on -one, a reporter is allowed to ask a follow-up question seeking clarification. They can even ask the question if they're daring with an incredulous look on their face. They can blink out distress signals. But if Sanders answers that follow-up question with another lie, not clarification, more obfuscation in place of clarification, or pivots to an attack on the media itself or to another lie, they're just supposed to take it. It's an abusive relationship, but the abused partner, you know, it isn't the White House press corps. Or Sarah Huckabee Sanders. It is the public. It is the republic. And they won't. The White House press corps, they won't call a liar a liar to her face or his face because it's rude. It's not done. There are norms we have to preserve. They're really preserving access. While Trump and his crew merrily burn down every norm, every democratic institution, the media itself, we're all very carefully observing these norms that no one else is. Well, Michelle Wolf didn't have to preserve her access to this particular gig. No one ever does this gig twice or to the powerful people that she had the opportunity and seized the opportunity to tell the truth to on Saturday night. So Michelle Wolf was actually able to do what the media claims it does every day. She was up there working for us. Like Colbert in 2006, the media would have us believe that Michelle Wolf bombed. Colbert didn't then, Wolf didn't now. Everyone in that room did. To paraphrase something Oscar Wilde is reported to have said after being asked about the opening night of one of his plays, erroneously, he never said it, so filed this under alternative fact, fake news. But to paraphrase, it's kind of Oscar Wilde, the White House Correspondents Association dinner this weekend, the comedian was a great success. The audience 
was a dismal failure. All right, coming up on today's show, what ends up on the cutting room floor for Hump and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, go subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads. I speak with a sociology professor in Australia about his work with male escorts. All that coming up. I'm a bisexual female from California. I'm going to be traveling for an extended period of time because now I'm able to work remotely and um, I'm planning to take advantage of that. I'm also a kingster. I um, identify as switch. And I guess I'm just a little bit at a loss as to how to incorporate that in my travels. And what I mean by that is to find partners. Usually, you know, in California, it's not very difficult for me to find someone that has those types of needs, but there's usually um, some back and forth period where you talk and, you know, there's negotiations and all that stuff. And I guess I'm just trying to figure out if it's even possible to do while I'm on my travels. I have been in the scene for about, I would say about four years now. It's almost a a need that I have to um, have this type of engagement. So I guess I'm just at a loss as to how I could expedite the matter, given that I'm going to be traveling so soon with different people and meeting different folks. And I think it'll also be a great opportunity to meet people and have those types of relationships. But I guess I'm I'm just having a difficult time uh, navigating it. The Internet is your buddy. Get on FetLife if you're opposite sexing it. If you're gay and you have this problem, get on Recon if you're looking for kinksters. And... You know where you're going, you know where you'll be traveling to, and you can say hi to people in that city, the city that you'll be visiting. You can sidle up to people on, again, FetLife, which is kind of like a social network, not necessarily a personal site for people who are kinksters, very popular with opposite sex kinksters. And you can get to know them in advance of your arrival. And you can also, because sites like Recon and FetLife, people have friend networks, you can also check in with their friends. And basically, by checking with their friends, check their references. So this is an easily solved problem. You just have to do your due diligence, do your homework, do your legwork in advance of arriving in a new city where you might want to play. Hey, Dan. Married by guy here in the Northeast. My wife and I have had some adventures over the years, mainly with other couples. We are married and professionals, and we uh, have kids, and so we are very discreet about with whom we play and where and how. And we live in a small rural state, so we've always tried to be very cautious about making sure that we're not co-workers or related to the people that we we meet. We've mostly met people on websites and we've avoided the Craigslist and and the clubs and whatnot. So the reason for my call is the question I have is, I had a couple on a swinger site that we are on who fit our bill and were relatively close in age and in interest and had reached out and had an initial discussion. They were new to everything. So we talked and realized that we had some things in common and we agreed to uh, share photographs. We explained to them Dropbox and how all that worked. Uh, we also gave them our email address and the person uh, from the couple, one of the people from the couple emailed to tell us they got the link about Dropbox and her real name was in the email that we received. And it is somebody that I went to high school with and have maintained a friendship with ever since. I don't really know her husband that well, but I went to high school with her. And we're supposed to see these people in a few weeks for like an old friend get together. 
My wife doesn't really know her all that well. The question I have is, should we let them know that we know who they are? And should we let them know who we are? Should we ghost them? It doesn't really seem fair, and they're brand new to the lifestyle, so we don't really want to freak them out and give them a bad experience out of the gate. But we also want to protect our anonymity. You say you're very careful about not being related to the people you and your wife meet up with for sex, and I thought I was the only one. Good to know that I'm not the only one out there who's very careful about not sleeping with relatives. <laughs> yeah, we we try to avoid relatives, you know, even even um, you know uh, friends and associates. So, okay, so if that's a rule for you guys, no friends, no associates, no overlap, you could ghost on this couple. And that would be slightly dickish and might leave a bad taste in their mouths about the swinging scene because ghosting's never kind. Uh, and people always wonder what it is that they did wrong. And they didn't do anything wrong except you guys went to high school together and you have ongoing social contact. Is that right? That's right. So they live in your small town. Um, I'm, and full disclosure, a bit of an update. We did end up revealing our identities to the couple in question. Mm-hmm. And so now the big question is, you know, because the comfort and familiarity is certainly there, but, you know, do we want to cross that, that physical uh, boundary with, with people that are friends? Like, you know, you can't go back, obviously. So, so. The, the comfort and familiarity is there and attraction too? That is yet to be determined. So neither of us have met my classmate's husband. Mm-hmm. So we, I think we, we won't know. We, I mean, Facebook only reveals so much, right? So we're <laughs> trying to determine that we're going to get together on Friday strictly for, you know, dinner mm-hmm. and, and see, you know, if there, if there is a physical attraction. Um, okay. Well then so. you, you're kind of taking my advice in advance of me giving it. Cause I thought that you should risk <laughs> at least letting them know what you know, because you knew that you knew them and you knew who they were. And I think that if, you knew enough about them to feel that you could trust them with this information that they weren't going to put three billboards up outside some fucking small town in Missouri or whatever, <laughs> outing you guys, that it would right. be better just to like let them know what you know rather than let them wonder for the rest of their lives what they did wrong or said wrong. So I'm glad you got in touch. I'm glad you let them know. I'm glad you're going out to dinner. If you guys don't end up having hookups, if you guys don't end up being sex partners uh, with this other couple, swinging with this other couple – you at least have mm-hmm. a couple of people in your lives, in your orbit, that you can be open with about being in the swinging scene. And you have some right. support. Because it sounds like you guys have gone to great efforts to isolate yourselves from a, a swinging social circle. We have. And I think that's where we sort of struggle. And maybe that's another call for another time. But what do you call people who sort of exist in that murky nether region between poly folks and swingers. Huh. You know, I don't know. It's a blurry line because some people are swingers, but not poly. They have one-offs. They don't have ongoing connections or relationships with the people that they have sex with. Sometimes people consider themselves open, but not poly, but they have a sort of a regular third or a regular couple that they play with, but they still regard it as swinging. There's sort of this arm's length, emotional distance. They don't regard it as a relationship, not even an FWB kind of relationship. But then sometimes people are open or people are swinging and they play so often with one person or one other couple that that becomes a relationship. And at some point they have to kind of cop to the fact that it's a polyamorous relationship. 
not a primary relationship, right. not an, an equal relationship. There's a hierarchy there. There's me and my spouse. We're the couple. But there's this other person of this other couple that's been a regular sex partner and now knows so much about us and is a part of our life in a way. And there's an emotional connection and even a history there at some point. And with that, I think you really do have to honor that relationship. At some point, you have to look at that relationship and say, okay, this is a polyamorous relationship. What began as swinging, what began as a regular hookup or sex buddy, you know, that's now somebody that we care about or a couple that we care about. And if they were in distress, we would help them out. We would rush in like friends, like people who had a relationship. And I think that's that makes a lot of sense. A wonderful yeah. and beautiful yep. thing. But you, but you can put that off. Just like you don't say I love you until I think wisely a long time after you felt the impulse to say I love you. Like, you think, mm-hmm. I, you know, I might want to say I love you. I'm kind of feeling I love you, but maybe it's too soon. And maybe this is just the infatuation stage. And I don't know what they smell like when they fart yet. So I'm going to wait a little bit longer before I say it. Because you don't <laughs> want to say that prematurely. Right. I think it's the same thing sometimes well, I, in that space between swinging and poly where, or open and poly. Where we don't want to say we're poly too soon. Just like you don't want to say I love you too soon. Because that can you know, feel like a premature commitment and premature commitments are always destabilizing for relationships. It's better to acknowledge what exists than to round something relationship wise up to something. It isn't yet that you're not sure it is yet. And you're not sure it could bear the weight of the acknowledgement. yet. That ma- that makes sense. I think where we struggle is, you know, we want the emotional connection prior to the physical intimacy, but everything we read and hear about poly suggests that if people aren't open to most people, if not everybody about being poly, that there's this, you know, this ongoing relationship, a chance for a cohabitation. And that's, that's just not where we are, you know? So we always feel kind of left out of that. There's no definition. one, there's no one way to do poly, right? There are polyamorous <laughs> couples who do not live with their, their seconds or thirds or fourths or fifths. And they have a, a polyamorous social and sexual and, and emotional relationship network um, there's not one way to do polyamory. And you and your wife sound like you're doing – you're a socially monogamous couple. You're doing social monogamy. You wish to, for reasons that are valid for where you live and how you live, to be perceived as monogamous even though you're not. And so that would preclude you guys having some other couple move in with you and coming out as polyamorous or whatever else. It doesn't mean you can't have the feelings for that other couple that qualify as polyamory. Mm-hmm. Even if you can't be openly polyamorous in your community – you can be polyamorous in your behaviors and your affections privately. That makes so much sense. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Good luck. Thank you so much. You're the best. Hi, Dan. I'm calling because I just went and saw uh, the Humpfeld Festival a couple weeks ago for the fourth time. And every year when I watch the films that are there, I want to know what are the ones that don't get included in the show, what kinds of things are ending up on the cutting room floor? I want to know, are there t- certain types of films that you see over and over again and, and you and the rest of the committee think, oh, God, not another one of these? Are there things you just get way too much of that you're never going to include? What kinds of stuff aren't we seeing? I'm really curious and I want to know. First of all, thank you for coming to Hump four years in a row. I hope you've enjoyed all of the films and all of the festivals and all of your visits. And I hope, and I cross my fingers that you are asking these questions because you're thinking about submitting a film to hump for the 14th annual hump. We have issued the call for submissions. Go to humpfilmfest.com, click on submit for everything you need to know about making and submitting a film to my dirty little porn film festival. They don't have to be hardcore humor, animation, musical comedy, 
hardcore, softcore, everything is welcome at Hump and everyone is welcome at Hump. Joining me to help tackle this question, Tracy Cataldo, official title at Hump, Director of Operations, unofficial title, my mean lesbian boss. Hi. How are you? Not mean. You do, Yeah, you make an effort in front of a live mic to be super nice just to deflect the mean lesbian boss label. I am super nice. And when people leave the show, they find me and they say, you're not so mean because they listen to you. Tracy's bitter because when we do the show together and I introduce the show, I always single her out and point her out as my mean lesbian boss. She's not mean at all. She is lesbian, however, and she is a boss. <laughs> and she is the co-chair of the Hump Jury. Every year when the films are submitted, we sit down in this conference room where we record the podcast and watch all the films and decide what gets into the festival from the two, 300 films submitted to the 24, 25, 26 that actually make it in. So Tracy, what do we see too much of? What do we see over and over again? What doesn't get in? We do see a lot of food. <laughs> um, a lot of food. Sometimes we get multiple films with donuts when we never said anything about donuts for some reason. Um, yeah, every year we do, uh, when we do the call for submissions, we encourage people to include a couple of props in their movies. Uh, little Easter eggs buried here and there for people to watch out for so people know that they made these movies just for Hump, just for Hump audiences. But then some years, something will pop up in seven or eight, nine, 10, 15, 20 of the submissions that we didn't ask for, like donuts, maybe because they're such an obvious sphincter reference that people can't resist them. Yeah, I don't think that we um, never, I don't think we get the same film that includes something that we never want to see. We always have a place for your film in Hump. If it's not this year, it's going to be a some year it will fit in. The film I think we see too often is the, we call them the SFMs, solo female masturbation. We get a lot of films at Hump <laughs> that's just one girl, one girl cranking it out. Well, I think you and I have a little bit of a war in the jury where a penis comes on and I cover my eyes and <laughs> a vagina comes on and I look over and you're covering your eyes. I think some things are easier for each of us to watch five minutes of. <laughs> but you, even you agree that there's only so many films we can have in a festival of one woman alone in a room masturbating. It's true. We like to... We like to widen the horizons if so if you you're will. gonna make a sfm film solo female masturbation is that your passion that's what you want to share with us there's got to be something else going on too to to put it ahead of the pack of all the other solo female masturbation films that are going to be in hump yeah what does it for us what we pick based off is not just the person in the film and what they're doing but the creativity behind the film and the scenery and as you say sometimes the kitchen has a really nice backsplash um, <laughs> porn comes in all sorts of different forms right and everyone's porn is different but really what we look for is to borrow a rupaulism creativity uniqueness nerve and talent yeah and we want to be surprised we're going on 14 years We've, we think we've seen it all, but every year we sit in the jury room and there's stuff that we Somebody have not seen Somebody finds a yet. new way to butter toast. That's right. And we are all <laughs> on the floor and excited to share that film with the hump audience. That's right. We always look for that one film that the audience is never going to forget their entire life. But what you should do is not try to figure out what we haven't seen before. You should figure out what it is about your sex life and the sex that you enjoy with your lover or lovers or friends and how you can make a short punchy, funny, human film about that and really just share your passion. That's what we look for at Hump. People really being themselves and sometimes that's porny, sometimes it's hardcore, softcore, sometimes it's humor, but just really being fully who you are erotically and sharing that. And the more unique it is, the better, the, the, the higher your odds of getting in the festival and having a good time. 
Yeah, and that's what sets Hump apart from every other porn company or porn film festival, if there are any other porn porn tubes out there, um, is that we are, but we focus on real people and real lives and real relationships. And um, yeah, I think the one thing I always like to say is don't be intimidated to make a Hump film. Um, it's the iPhone quality these days. Shoot. Yeah, you don't need a professional film crew. Right. Stuff Sit around with your friends over happy hour, have some drinks, come up with an idea, make a film. And get your ass in hump. Humpfilmfest.com, click submit. Any other advice for p- people thinking about it? Just send it. Just just don't question it. Just send us the film. You'll be surprised what we like. And when's the deadline for submissions for the 14th annual September hump? 14th, 2018. And hump now tours 50, 60 cities? Uh, we're hitting 40, 45 this year. We're on our way to 50 cities. We're doing 50 cities, Dan says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, and one last note about Hump. Every year we give away up to now $15,000 in cash prizes, including the $5,000 Best in Show Award. But $10,000 Best in Show Award. 14th Annual Hump, the Best in Show Award is now $10,000. That's right. And there's no fee to enter Hump. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old, pretty straight girl. I'm in a long-term relationship with a guy we've been together for three years now and it's great love him for the first like year and a half of our relationship we had really wonderful sex like all the time like almost every day we you know had erotic fun adventurous crazy sex and it was super fun and that was one of the things that made me love him so much but he's also an alcoholic. And the reason we were having all this crazy sex all night long was because he was drunk. And he's gotten that under control. And he's not drinking anymore. And our lives are generally better. He's, like, much happier. And his moods are much more level. He's not on this roller coaster of being, like, drunk and then hungover and then drunk again. And I'm so proud of him for taking care of himself, you know, getting over that. You know, it's a really hard thing to do. And I'm like so happy. But I really miss the sex. Now, when we have sex much less frequently, and when we do, it's like for 10 minutes. And, you know, it's not, it's just not as wild as it used to be. And then he's done. And he just doesn't have the energy or the stamina to keep going like that. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) I want that back. I really miss it. But I also, you know, don't want him to compromise his accomplishment in getting his alcoholism under control. The reason you were having all that great, adventurous, crazy, erotic sex wasn't because he was drunk necessarily it's because drinking effectively disinhibited him drinking him made him unselfconscious in the moment and he could do crazy erotic adventurous sex when he was benefiting from the disinhibiting effects of alcohol you're not a drunk you don't drink you were capable of having all that crazy erotic adventurous banana sex sober and so it's really on you right now to help him get back to that disinhibited place by modeling it for him, by showing him how that is possible. So sounds to me like when you guys were fucking, when he was drinking, that he was the aggressor and he was the instigator and the initiator. And at least for now, to help 
lead him back to a place where you can have crazy, uninhibited, erotic, adventurous sex again, you're going to have to be the instigator. You're going to have to initiate. The sex is going to go on longer than 10 minutes if you insist, if you draw it out, if you lead. And I think you have to have a conversation with him where you say, we used to have sex like this when you were drunk and now you're not drunk and I want you to not be drunk and keep not drinking and you're happier and healthier and our relationship is better. But I want to get back to that kind of sex and we can have that kind of sex without alcohol, without hangovers, without substance abuse. We're just going to have to make an effort. It's going to have to be a conscious choice that we will make together to be crazy, to be adventurous, to be erotic and not just rely on the alcohol to do that work for us anymore because the alcohol isn't doing that work for us anymore and it's never going to do that work for us again. So we're going to have to do it. Yeah, this isn't about energy or stamina. This is about the ability of booze to just shut down that part of our brain that doesn't allow us to really let go sexually. Some people have inhibitions. Some people have hangups. Some people have religious bullshit rattling around in their heads, a voice in their heads that only drugs or alcohol can silence. That only drugs or alcohol, they believe only drugs or alcohol can turn that switch off, shut that voice up, and only then are they free to be who they are sexually and uninhibited and crazy and erotic and adventurous. And that's a lie that alcohol tells us. That's a lie that drugs tell us. We can consciously shut that voice up. We can consciously flip that switch, but it requires effort and it requires practice. For many people, booze, drugs, even pot, which I do sometimes recommend to people with inhibition issues, that's a shortcut. Now you're going to have to take the long way and you'll get better at it over time, but you're going to have to lead. You're going to have to initiate. You're going to have to be the aggressor, at least for now, while you bridge this gap between how it worked for him when he was drunk, how it works from now and how it can work for him in the future. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old female that lives on the East Coast. I work at this job, um, and I've been having an affair with my boss for the past year and a half. I graduate college next month, and I don't really know what to do because I have immense feelings for this, this guy, except for the fact that like, he's married, and she's pregnant, and she's going to be due next week while he's on vacation or the week after. And I've tried to end it several times with him, but for some reason, my attraction to him just kept it going. Every time that I see him, it's just it gets worse. And I thought about quitting, but right now I'm not at a financially or mentally stable position to quit my job and look for a new one, especially not with finishing up college. And I know like the judgment because I've been thinking about it all the time. I think about it all the time, every day when I'm at work, at school. I think about the awful things that I've done, and I, I really wish that I hadn't done that. And it just makes it worse because when I'm around him, I just want to be near him more. I want to talk to him. I want to text him. I want to Snapchat him. And I'm not really sure what to do. And he kind of he keeps it going. I just I wish that, like, I didn't feel as guilty. I'm not exactly sure how to make up for what I've done. Because I think about what I want in the future, and I know that I want to be married in the future, and I want to have kids, and I, I don't want a man to do what he's doing to his wife, but I can't stop the feeling of wanting to be with him. Long before she ever got pregnant, we had plans to get a hotel room and do all sorts of things together, and it just it, it sucks because I still want that with him, and I really wish that I didn't. 
and I don't know how to stop my feelings from him. And it's easy when I'm not with him because I am having uh, having sex with my ex-boyfriend, who's my friend's with benefits now. But and then I feel okay when I'm not around him. That's when it gets worse. And he and I are both leaving our jobs very soon. I plan to leave a little bit after graduation just so I can get some money, and he plans to leave soon after that. I just can't stop the feeling of wanting him to be around me and missing him. You're only planning to have this job for another month, and the income that you're going to rake in in the next month is so crucial to your future and your survival that you can't quit this job right fucking now. I'm not buying it. Quit your fucking job right now. If you have the kind of relationship with mom or dad or dads or moms where you can be open with them about your sex life and your romantic life and your failings and shortcomings, you might want to say to mom and dad, I'm working in this place for another month, but I need to quit my job and the financial hit's going to be a problem for me moving. Can you guys cover it? Because I really need to quit my job. It is in my best interests and the best interests of someone else at my place of employment, that person's wife and that couple's unborn child. And a decent, loving, sex-positive parent would write you a check or Venmo you some money or however it's done now. You say, how do I make up for what I've done? But that's kind of a cover. Like Sometimes people say, oh, I can't possibly make up for what I've already done, so I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing because there's no way to make up for what I've done. It's the in for a sin penny, in for a sin pound kind of rationalization that people make when they know they're doing something shitty. They know they should stop, but they figure, ah, the pile of shitty shit that I've already shat is so enormous. What difference will one more turd make? And so you go fuck the dude again. You know what you need to do. You say that when you aren't with him, you don't miss him. And you have another sex partner, your former boyfriend, your friend with benefits. And when you're with him, you're not aching and pining for this guy who's cheating on his wife, who is pregnant and about to have a baby. Who is he? Donald fucking Trump? That's who you're dating? Donald fucking Trump? You don't miss him when you're with somebody else. So go be with somebody else's. There are 3.5 billion other men on the planet. Don't make that mistake where you think, I'm so into this guy. The sexual attraction and sexual connection is so powerful that I can't let this go because I will never have this again. That is also a rationalization and a lie that people tell themselves when they're doing something or someone that they know they shouldn't be doing, that they're hurting someone else by doing, or they're hurting themselves by doing. Stop making rationalizations. Stop making excuses. Quit your fucking job already. You're only talking about a month's worth of income. Go collect some bottles by the side of the road and turn them into the grocery store. Figure out a way to make that money elsewhere or ask mom and dad to cover you. And if you don't want to tell the truth to mom and dad, you always have the option quitting your job, telling mom and dad you got fired for some bullshit reason and asking for the money. Hey Dan, my fiance and I have become aware of a situation between our four friends, one hetero married couple and another unmarried hetero couple. The two guys that I'll just refer to as boyfriend and husband, since one is married and the other one isn't, are best friends and have been for a really long time. So they go out drinking, they head back to boyfriend's apartment and they're like talking about their respective relationships, troubles they're having, and they're having this intimate moment of vulnerability, drunk as skunks, talking about how they both felt like attractions to men but haven't acted on it. And it's around this time that boyfriend leans in and kisses husband. 
Husband's like, whoa, too much, not what I was going for. Shortly thereafter, girlfriend comes home to the apartment, and the husband takes this opportunity to, like, get the fuck out of Dodge. But boyfriend follows him out into the hallway, apologizes, and then, like, goes in for another kiss with his girlfriend, like, in the nearby apartment. Boyfriend persists. Husband pushes him away. Boyfriend persists some more, grabs at his junk. Husband like shoves him and this is apparently intense enough that the next day the boyfriend texts the husband something like that he woke up with bruises asking if they got into a fight uh so apparently he's claiming not to remember the details of this husband goes home tells wife wife tells my fiance and here we are uh my question is basically about roles and obligations and boundaries and support because this is just really complicated with people being by curious and not quite cheating, but like trying to cheat and alcoholism and depression is in here and friendship and assault. So do we have an obligation to tell the girlfriend about this? Not because of the cheating, but because who knows what their arrangements are, but the assault. And can we supportive, be supportive of the husband and the wife because their marriage is kind of already on the rocks. They're in therapy, but this happened really recently. And we really don't know how to feel about this boyfriend. We want to be supportive. This is not the first time he's gotten drunk and done something stupid and reckless, but we've never seen anything where he's like really missing these big cues to like not do that. You know, a no and a stop. He was really drunk and he doesn't remember, but he has to know at this point uh, because the husband has deleted his number and they're apparently not talking. So we want to be good supportive friends and we're just kind of lost on what to do. At first, as I listened, I was like, what does this have to do with you guys? There's always the mind your own fucking business option. But toward the end, the issue here, just to, to sum it up, is there is this guy who is dating a friend of yours, the boyfriend, who is a drunk, semi-closeted mess, who has assaulted another mutual friend and assaulted him so badly and all assault is bad but assaulted him so badly that that relationship is over that they were friends for a very long time shit went down things were said junk was grabbed shoves were shoved and now that relationship is over are you obligated or should you say something to your friend who is dating this train wreck and i think friendship requires you to speak up i think friendship requires you to Involve yourself in a small way to call up your friend, the woman who's dating this train wreck and to meet up for a drink or coffee just to talk. And instead of busting out everything, you know, and just throwing it all at her, draw her out about her relationship. How are things? We're a little concerned. Your boyfriend and his old friend, the husband, they had this crazy falling out. Are you okay? What's going on? And then let her lead. If she shuts it down and does not want to talk about it and doesn't welcome your input slash interference, back the fuck off. If she opens up to you, if she begins to ask you questions, you know what you know. And if she asks, if she wishes to know what you know about what went down and what's up with her boyfriend, she's asking you to involve yourself in her business at that point. Generally, I think people should mind their own business. We don't want to watch a friend be destroyed in a shitty relationship when we have information that they arguably have a right to and should know. 
so that they can make an informed decision about whether they're going to stay in this relationship or continue to see this person. It turned out her boyfriend was a bank robber or a Russian hacker or a Trump voter. You should probably tell her that her boyfriend has a drinking problem and a junk grabbing problem and an assault problem and a lunging, shoving problem with somebody else. He might have all of those problems with her too. And she might need someone to say to her, Hey, what's up? And the first thing you do after you say what, Hey, what's up to a friend when you have the goods or something that you think that they should know about their partner. The first thing you do is you listen, you ask a couple of vague open-ended questions that allows them to open up to you and pull you into the conversation. You need them really to say, acknowledge implicitly or explicitly, this is my business, but I'm asking you to involve yourself in it. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight 34-year-old woman. I'm calling because I've been dating this guy a couple of months now, and everything's been going really well. Like we, We get along. Sex is great. We have similar goals. The problem is that he does this thing where he makes like kind of ironic sexist jokes around his friends. Like when we hang out, like specifically like his roommate, he'll be like, oh, like, you know, the ball and chain here or, you know, like his his roommate will be like, oh, like she really keeps you on a short leash and all these these jokes that I, I just don't think they're funny. And um, I've told him before, like, oh, like I, I get that you're just joking, but it's actually it's really annoying for me and I don't like it. Could you please not do it? I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I just, I don't like it, you know? And his response at first was good. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It won't happen again. But then it continues to happen. Like, it'll be just little things here and there. And I don't know what to do. Like, uh, I, I bring it up every time it happens. I'm like, look, you did it again. It's really hurtful. I wish you wouldn't do it. And lately he's been answering with, well, you're the only woman I've dated who cares about these ball and chain jokes. Uh, Most people think they're funny. You know, like you're really sensitive and I'll try to like accommodate you, but like it's going to take a lot of work for me because other women I joke like this with. And I don't know if you could, I don't know if if it's a deal breaker. It certainly makes me feel unrespected. Most people think these jokes are funny. All of his previous girlfriends who broke up with him for reasons, think these jokes are funny, well, then he should date most people or get back together with one of his previous girlfriends. That's how you should say this to him. Look, the person you're dating right now isn't most people. It's this person. And I'm not your ex-girlfriends. I'm your current, for the time being, girlfriend. And I don't find this shit funny, and it stops now. It is really not that hard to remember not to make ball and chain cracks or short leash cracks. And I would be concerned about getting more deeply involved with someone who lays down a marker at the beginning of the relationship about this kind of sexist, disparaging, disrespectful treatment and this kind of disregard for how you feel about being treated that way. Because that is the thunder on the horizon. Those are the storm clouds on the horizon. That is the flare, the red flag that says this could get worse over time. This could be frog in the frying pan shit. He could be sussing you out to see how much sexist denigration and abuse you're willing to tolerate. And if you tolerate this, because it's just so hard for him to remember not to make these jokes, which is bullshit, what will you put up with after you've invested a year or two years or six years and you've scrambled your DNA together and you've married and extricating yourself from the relationship would be legally and emotionally and socially problematic for you in an enormous way. What will you put up with then? 
what you tell them is this stops now because you're not going to stick around to find out how much worse it could get over time if he can't knock this shit off now. Two months, eight weeks, you've been dating this guy. You can walk away from that. You can walk away from good sex. You can walk away from everything else that works about this relationship because this not working about this relationship, this is a big deal. This kind of disrespect that he clings to a couple of sexist jokes that he makes with his friends about you disparaging his girlfriend and her role in his life. It is a big deal. Other guys out there you can have great sex with, have everything else that works about this relationship. If he can't fix this, if he can't make this work, got to dump that motherfucker already. Hey, Dan, this is a 28-year-old female from California. I've got a question for you. Um, I have this vibrator that I love, but every time I use it inside me, I end up with a yeast infection. I do always clean it before, but what am I doing wrong? What can I do to happily use my vibrator without the consequences? If you don't have this problem with other vibrators, it could be this vibrator. It could be porous in a way that it's impossible to adequately clean it. You can also continue to use this vibrator and experiment by rolling a condom over it and seeing if you stop having this problem. But yeast infections, so I've been told, are incredibly unpleasant affairs. And if it is clear through trial and error that this vibrator and using this vibrator invariably results in a yeast infection, throw out that vibrator. There are other vibrators out there in the world. They're really not that expensive, even high-quality ones made of silicone that you can clean effectively. But again, if you are really attached sentimentally to this vibrator, put a condom on it or a dental dam on you. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a convo about one of my mom's favorite topics, male escorts. Joining me by phone, Dr. John Scott, a sociology professor based at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia, someone who has studied extensively male escorting. He is the co-editor of Male Sex Work and Society that came out in 2014. And Professor Scott and his co-editor, Victor Manicello, are at work on the second volume of Male Sex Work and Society now. Hey, Dr. Scott, thanks for coming on the show. Look, it's a pleasure, Dan. Great to be on your show. So your studies of, uh, of male escorting, it's just not male escorting in Australia that you've studied. And uh, sex work is legal, certain forms of it, legal in Australia. Uh, but you, you studied male escorting all around the world, isn't that right? Yeah, look, that's right. Uh, recently, we, um, oh, look, about two years ago, we created a website to inform the public about uh, male escorting, um, uh, to invite uh, practitioners, male escorts themselves to come on and do blogs on the site. And um, and from there, we also created an app where we, we include as many uh, escorts globally as possible into that app. So if people were traveling, they could actually locate an escort um, in particular regions around the world. Um, now, we're researchers, and as part of that, we, we did a bit of a, a number count. So we, we, we looked at, you know, how many escorts there were in various places, and we were pretty confident that we um, we, we covered, you know, most, most of the globe. You know, this was about six months of research. We had a dedicated researcher doing this, scouting around and checking in various languages and so on. Um, we were pretty confident that we um, had a pretty good global coverage of what was happening um, at the moment in terms of the, uh, the worldwide male escort industry. So when people talk about escorting, when people talk about sex workers, when people talk about sex trafficking, people are always talking about or think they're talking about women exclusively. Oh, yeah. But there yeah, are totally. 
there are male escorts out there and they're just not part of the conversation, it seems, about you know the victims of trafficking or people who are being exploited by pimps and certainly not part of the conversation often uh, about legalizing or decriminalizing sex work. Why are male escorts an afterthought? Are they really such a tiny percentage of all the escorts that work out there that they're so overlooked? Yeah, look, uh, very good question, uh, Dan. Look, I mean, historically, there's always been male sex workers. Now, in the past, historically, uh, often male uh, prostitutes, as they were sometimes referred to, often that act, those activities were conflated with homosexuality and they were regulated as such. And it really wasn't until the 1950s that uh, scholars started to look at uh, males uh, as sex workers. Um, so this is a fairly new phenomenon. So um, and and the, you know the first documented studies really start to appear at about that time. Now, if we look at numbers, we I, I would pretty confidently say that men make up about 10%, so about 10% of um, the overall sex industry, the overall uh, numbers of um, sex workers, um, which, which isn't a lot, but, you know, if you go to particular areas, that those numbers will vary. So, so you know, at particular places, at particular times, there's been a, a higher numbers, of, of relatively higher numbers of male sex workers in relation to uh, female sex workers in certain places. Like a famous example would be Berlin in the 1920s and 1930s. There seemed to be a bit of an explosion in that period in that particular city. So so you get these variations. And, and even at the moment, if you look um, globally, um, and, and we did this, of course, we'll find, you know, some global variations uh, in terms of numbers. Um, you also mentioned earlier, too, the, the issue of sex trafficking, and, and, and this does get a little bit confused. Inflated, uh, with sex work. And I, I want to make the distinction here too that what I'm primarily interested in isn't sex trafficking. It's uh, because that's something that's very coercive. And the way uh, we view male escorting, it's, it's something that involves two rationally consenting adults. And, you know, the problem with uh, a lot of the research, particularly in the United States, you know, a lot of funding goes into uh, looking at trafficking, controlling trafficking, regulating, and, and so it should. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these resources get misdirected when the traffic is conflated with um, sex work. And so, you know, you've, you've got the police out there, you know, policing rationally consenting adults engaged in behaviours when they should be out there catching the traffickers and, you know, and, and, the, the, and the people that are getting exploited. And of course, you know, that can include men and women. So do you have a, a sense roughly of the percentage of male escorts who work with same-sex clients versus opposite-sex clients? You know, women often don't feel as entitled as men to buy what they um, want or seek what they want, get what they want, because uh, the culture encourages men, yeah. Western culture encourages men to ask for and demand whatever it is they think that they deserve. <laughs> yes. And, and so it's just been my impression over the years writing about uh, sex work and occasionally writing about male sex workers that overwhelmingly these guys work with gay and bi men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, that you know, you're quite right. We, we would estimate, you know, and again, this is just a rough figure, you know, and, and probably uh, primarily for Western-type context, that 90% of the industry is same-sex um, and, and roughly about 10%, probably less um, in, in, in many regions, in many places, um, is uh, devoted to women and couples. And, and the couples can, market can be quite high in some places. I, I think Brazil's one of those places. So, yes, look, it's, it's primarily been about um, same-sex relations uh, when, when we look at uh, male escorting. Um, it's interesting, you know, when you look at the way that people identify themselves. I know that a lot of the early research into uh, 
uh, male sex workers um, made the claim that most of them were, you know, young hustlers and, you know, primarily identified as straight. But roughly in about the 1980s, 1990s, that started to shift and more studies were being done on escorts and the escorts primarily identified as uh, gay and bisexual. And at the same time, you know, there was this other interesting thing in the earlier studies uh, they claimed that a lot of the clients were actually, um, quote, homosexual men. And, and this also shifted by, by the 1990s, and they found quite the opposite, you know, when we were looking at the escorts, that a lot of the uh, clients were actually, you know, primarily publicly straight identified. That doesn't shock me. <laughs> no, it wouldn't shock you. Know, you. It, it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the male sex workers that I've known personally, I have friends who have do porn, who are porn stars. I have friends who, uh, male friends who've done sex work and their clients were all men, but their clients were mostly married men who weren't married to other men, married men who were married to women who were closeted and gay or closeted and bi. And this was the outlet that they had for their same sex desires. Yeah, look, absolutely. And and that seems to be one of the more sort of uh, dominant findings that's, you know, come out, say, over the last 20 years or so. And um, you look, I, I think it's, you know, there's probably a, a few reasons for that, you know, and, and one of them's, um, I guess, more acceptance of same-sex relationships has, has allowed for um, both the sex workers to come out and identify as gay. And probably it's also uh, meant that um, less gay-identified men are probably actually seeking those services, but um, but you're getting more, seeing more the closeted men who are seeking those sorts of services. A, a lot of what seems to motivate, you know, the focus on, sex trafficking victims and, and minors who are being exploited. Of course, both those things are terrible. But a lot of what seems to motivate it is the sense that there are women out there, damsels in distress, who are being harmed, who are being taken advantage of, that there is this sexism in the culture, of course, and there definitely is sexism in the culture, and this desire to kind of white knight it and ride to the rescue of these damsels in distress and save these women from the clutches of the, the pimps and the johns. And mm-hmm. – that seems to motivate a lot of the arrests of mm. women who, out there who are engaged in consensual uh, sex work and those arrests can really screw up their lives and they don't regard them as rescue when they are arrested and prosecuted for doing sex work. Are male sex workers, because they're not the focus of this sexist damsel in distress narrative, are they less at risk of arrest and prosecution than female sex workers? Yeah, uh, look, not not a lot of research has been done in this area, but um, a, a little bit of research has indicated that uh, when you're looking at arrests, it might be say uh, twenty to thirty percent of uh, arrests historically, you know, have been uh, male. But you know, again, a lot of the time, uh, male sex work has been regulated in relation to same-sex regulation. So you know, not rather mm. than say um, prostitution regulation. So there's been that difference. But you know, if I can again sort of refer historically, if you if you go go back say to the to, to from the 1950s up until about the 1980s, primarily the, the population that was policed were hustlers, um, so young men out on the streets who were primarily straight identified. And the interesting thing about that <clears throat> was that the um, you know the welfare agencies would deal with with the hustlers, and the clients, of course, would be the real target of the regulation. Now it's quite the reverse when we look at um, female sex work historically, because the clients are often you know um, not being regulated, and it's the um, the street workers who who are the ones that we're copying, you know, most of, most of the heat in regards to regulation. So, so it's a, it's a bit of a reverse, you know. And of course, there's um, there's a, there's a gender bias in, in some of that. But you know, there certainly hasn't been these attempts to um, recently, I guess, to go out and save 
male sex workers, although there has been, you know, crackdowns on, you know, uh, things like Rent Boy famously, um, you know, uh, only only a year or two ago now. Mm-hmm. What are the unique issues that male escorts confront in comparison to, to female escorts? Yeah, look, um, good, good question. I, I guess one of one of the big differences, if we look at um, violence, the reasons, motivations for violence with female escorts, you know, you, you probably you know are clearly uh, misogynistic a lot of the time, whereas um, we're, we're talking about homophobic uh, violence with with male escorts. So there's a little bit of a difference there. We mentioned earlier, there's there's probably less of an inclination to go out and police. Escorts. I mean, one of the reasons why um, both male and female escorts get less less policed and less regulated is because they do a lot of their activities pretty discreetly. And when it comes to the sex industry, um, there's been you know a, a real propensity to go out and police the streets. You know, we don't like to see promiscuous bodies out there in, in public in public spaces. And so, if it's happening behind closed doors, often authorities will turn a bit of a blind eye to it. Um, and that does go for the for, for the men as well as the women. Um, of course, a lot of the time in the past, um, some of this activity would occur at beats in, in public places, and that's where a lot of the policing used to occur in the past. Other, other differences between the two groups, I, I, I guess there's, there's not, a, not a lot really. You know, if we, we, if we look at the two groups, I think there is a higher proportion of escorts among the men. So when we look at the males, it's, it's pretty much over 90% these days in, in Western contexts tend to be online male escorts. Whereas a lot of women will still work in, say, parlours or brothels. Um, we we didn't have the pimping. You mentioned pimping earlier, so uh, pimping generally doesn't isn't associated with the male sex industry, but more so with the female. But other than that, um, they're they're probably the, the main differences. And when in your research you document uh, how people who do this kind of escorting are damaged or harmed, is it the escorting itself, or is it the criminalisation that does the harm? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, that's 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 a good question too. Um, look, you know, certainly you know, some people will will enter into this uh, kind of work, and um, uh, they may have had previous life problems. For example, in in the past, a lot of the street hustlers, you know, they might have been homeless, and you know, they might have been engaged in survival sex, um, and that they were you know already living on the streets, and this was an opportunity for them to you know go out and um, you know make some money. In in terms of, I, I guess the, the other sorts of um, harms related to to the industry. Yes, a lot of them are based on the regulation, how we regulate the industry. You know, my general argument is that if we criminalise the industry, that's really problematic because you drive it underground and and that's not good. We we want uh, sex workers to, you know, be healthy. We want them to go out and seek health services. We want them to go out and seek, you know, welfare services if they need them. We also want them to be able to approach the authorities or the police if they're being exploited or being physically abused or harmed by clients or anyone else. Yeah, totally. Which, which, which I was going to mention. So, so yes, and we, we, we want them to go and, and, and approach the police. And unfortunately, when it's criminalised too, Dan, it, it, it leads to police corruption a lot of the time too. I mean, it's more associated with the, the female side of the sex industry, but it can be with, with um, the male uh, sex industry as well. Um, so we know that you know that the police can can you know uh, get involved in in in, in vice where it is criminalised. Um, the, the, the best option, um, in my opinion, in, in, if we look at the regulation of the sex industry, is one of decriminalisation. And, and that's really only done in a couple of places. One is the state of New South Wales here in Australia and the other is in New Zealand. And where the sex industry has been decriminalised, research has indicated um, and very strongly indicated that um, there are better health outcomes 
uh, there are better regulatory outcomes. You know, it, once again, it allows resources to be more targeted. Mm-hmm. It allows resources to go out and, you know, if, if somebody is underage um, and, and caught up in, in trafficking uh, or coercion, um, the police can go and target uh, those groups rather than targeting, you know, once again, the consenting adults. And I believe I believe the research also points to the fact that where, where it has been decriminalized, it's easier for people to leave sex work when they choose to leave sex work. So just to pause here for, for listeners out there who don't who don't support decriminalization because they want to rescue people from doing sex work, decriminalization makes it easier for people who wish to leave sex work to leave sex work. So you should support decriminalization if what you want to do is make it easier for people to exit sex work. Absolutely. Um, it, one, one, of the, one of the things with decriminalisation is it means that the sex industry is less stigmatised. And of course, we know that stigmatising people, you know, it, it doesn't allow them to go and find other work. You know, it doesn't allow them to find housing. It, you know, it, it leads to all sorts of problems. If you've got a criminal background, um, especially in the United States, where I, I understand you can't vote in, in certain instances and so on, you know, this, this, can, this can lead to all sorts of, of problems and all sorts of discrimination. So by decriminalising it, it means that, you know, we're allowing people to sort of get out without a criminal record and to go and re-enter into society, um, you know, the way they want to re-enter into society, not as criminals, um, but, you know, but as people who have been workers in in a legitimate industry. The book is Male Sex Work and Society. It's available on Amazon. John Scott is one of the editors. Where can people go online to find more about your research? We've got a website called Me us and male escorting, um, which is based at the Queensland University of Technology, where I work. Um, if you have a look at that website, you'll find there's some uh, blogs on the site. Some of them have been written by um, sex workers themselves or people uh, closely involved in the industry, as well as um, there's a couple of academic blogs there as well. Uh, one of the important things about research these days, too, is that um, you know often we go into the research uh you know, in partnership with, with the escorts themselves. So so it's not just about the, uh, them being researched, but them collaborating in, in some of the research as well and, um, have, you know, giving some feedback as, as to the research itself. Harrington Park Press is our publisher, um, so of, uh, of, of our first volume of our book, uh, Male Sex Work and Society, and we're putting together a second volume at the moment, which we expect to be out probably early next year. Um, and again, that, that book will have some academic accounts, but it's also got some uh, accounts from professionals, uh, practitioners in the area. Um, it's a pretty exciting volume. We're going to have some graphic chapters in that in the sense that um, we've got a graphic um, artist who's going to put an account in of, of his work and, and what he does and so on. So it's going to be a little bit different from your average uh, academic uh, tome. Dr. John Scott, sociology professor based at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I have a copy of Male Sex Work and Society at home that you sent me. I read it. It was fascinating, and it was great to get to speak with you today. It's been a great pleasure to be with you and your audience. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old cis female calling from the Pacific Northwest, and I'm wondering if you think I should get engaged because of Donald Trump. My boyfriend and I have been together for a year, living together for the last five months. It's been kind of fast because we were good friends before either of us caught feelings. So once we tried things out and they worked, they got serious pretty quickly. Everything's been going really, really well so far. This is hands down the best relationship I've ever been in. Very compatible, lots of shared interests and values. The sex is great. And my family and close friends think he's fantastic. Uh, And the things that drive me nuts about him are things I can live with pretty easily. So overall, this is somebody that I feel confident I can happily round up to one. 
normally I would think, well, that's great. Let's keep doing what we're doing. And maybe in a couple of years, if it's still great, we'll think about getting married. But nothing has felt very normal in this political climate. Um, he would really benefit from being on my health insurance. And I, as a foreigner, would love to get a green card and eventually get the right to vote and do my very small part to help kick those assholes out of office. Nobody's under any duress here, but, you know, these are nice to have. Um, so I'm thinking about fast-tracking things and proposing. Um, I've listened to your show long enough to guess what you would think about uh, people getting married after only a year of dating. But I'm wondering if I can get a pass under the circumstances. I'm pretty confident that this is the direction this is heading anyway. And, you know, while a couple of years may give me a little more insight, uh, it's a risk that I'm willing to take. And I love the idea of using conservative values and the institution of marriage to kind of help in a very small way pull one over the GOP. So what do you think, Dan? May I have your blessing? I could sign off on marrying after a year, considering that you guys were friends for an extended period of time before that, but I'm not going to sign off on marrying so that you can ride to the rescue and vote out the assholes in this country, not because we don't need all the help we can get in this country and all the sane progressive voters that we can get in this country, but because that's not how it works. You don't get married and the next day you get your social security number and your voter registration card and your driver's license. It is a long, drawn-out process. It takes three or four years. You could marry today and you will not be voting in the 2018 midterm elections. You will not be voting in the 2020 presidential elections. So set that aside. If you want to marry because he needs health insurance and you feel like this is right, he's the guy for you, that is a reason. Health insurance that many people in this country are forced to marry or stay married, and that is an obscenity. But it's also a perfectly rational reason to marry. To vote out the bastards, to vote in 2018 or 2020, not a rational reason to marry, if only for the reason that you won't be voting in 2018 or 2020. So you can take your time on this engagement. There is no rush except the health insurance issue. But he has options, at least for the moment, while Obamacare is still limping along despite Republican efforts to destroy it. And if you have the money laying around and you want to do something about our upcoming elections, you and your fiancé, if you are engaged or get engaged, you can donate that money. He can donate that money. You as a foreign national, you cannot donate that money. But he can donate his own money, money he would have spent on a wedding in 2018 or 2019, you can donate that to Democrats running all over the country to get the bastards out. And you know what? A pile of money, particularly the size of the pile of money that people throw at a wedding, that's going to have more of an impact on 2018 and 2020 than your single vote would. Hi, Dan Savage. I am a 32-year-old female, I guess heterosexual, I don't know, bi-flexible Married together for eight years, married for four. We have a great sex life, we do, but I guess we do have a mixed-match libido. But I find I have a mixed-match libido with most people. So I took your advice, and I talked to him about opening it up, and he's definitely against it, and he's okay with me talking to people, but adamantly against it to the point where it was probably in our marriage. But 
he's not aggressive in the bedroom. Like the sex we do have is great. But can a girl just want a man to just throw her on the bed, hold her down, and take his pleasure as well as give it? I don't know. Anyways, so ethical or not, I looked outside the marriage, and, you know, that doesn't seem to do it either. I've had two amazing sex partners in my lifetime, and one was my ex-husband, and while his, the sex was amazing, everything else was horrible. And then I have an issue as far as masturbation. Like, it just doesn't do it for me. I I get bored. Whereas, like, if I'm in the other room with somebody else when it comes to sex, like, I can just keep going. I don't know. I don't get bored. I'm, but it is very hard for me to come. But I just, like, I thrive on, I guess, the other person's pleasure. So I guess my question to you, Dan, is what do I do? Outsiders don't do it. You don't do it. Obviously, I'm not going to fuck my ex. And I've tried to talk to him about it. I've tried to express this is what I want to others when I meet up. And it just, I don't know. Am I just too picky? Someone who isn't throwing you around and holding you down and taking their pleasure and fucking you the way you need to be fucked the way you require, the way you absolutely must be fucked to feel sexually fulfilled. Someone who's not doing that now will not be doing that eight years in the future. You need to establish basic sexual compatibility, a bedrock of sexual compatibility on which you can build and you can come closer together and add new things to your repertoire. But you have to have something to work with, some fundamental, basic, on-the-same-page sexual compatibility. And it doesn't sound like you ever had that in this relationship. And you know that you need that kind of sex to be happy and content, particularly in a closed relationship, in a monogamous relationship. What do you do now? Well, you have the option of the ultimatum. It's open or it's over. And I think that's the way that you should go. You should call the question. Perhaps your husband will be poly under duress briefly and then become one of those formerly poly under duress poly people who are happy to be poly because it saved his marriage and works for him too and works for the wife and she was the instigator at first but he was unhappy then but he's happy now that is a thing that is a an arc a story arc that happens for a lot of people who are poly usually one person instigates the other person's very reluctant and then if the relationship survives it's because the other person came around usually one person instigates the other person accommodates and often more often than not, I think, but I got no data just pulling that out of my ass. Often the person who reluctantly went along to save the marriage grows into it and it begins to work for them too. I have seen that again and again and again, but you're not going to be content in this relationship as is. Sounds like you're already cheating, wishing you could find your ex-husband even to cheat with him. And you're going to get caught and it's going to blow up in your face. And then you're going to be negotiating poly and openness from a disadvantage where you're the bad guy. You're the cheater. And there's all this sturm and drang and angst and recrimination. And you have to dig yourself out of that hole at the same time you're trying to build a polyamorous agreement or arrangement or accommodation that would allow the marriage to survive when – so far as he'll be concerned at that point, you've already discarded your marriage or undermined it fatally. So ultimatum time. Honey, it's open or I'm out. And in your next marriage, please establish sexual compatibility before you march your ass down the aisle a third time. Hi, I'm a 38-year-old cis white male living in the Midwest. been married for five years. been with my wife for nine and my problem is 
my wife wants an open marriage, and she's been talking about it. She's been honest, and she finally went out and was with her first other guy, and it freaked me the hell out, and I can't blame her. And my question is, how do I deal with this horrible anxiety? She has been honest and forthright in the run-up to this process, and unfortunately, I've been in denial. She's offered to help get me a girlfriend. I initially turned that down. I think my big problem is she was off with her friend, and I had no one to vent with, and I spiraled into negativity. I didn't do anything horrible, but it just it freaked me out of my own head. I need some help accepting this new life because she has told me point blank it's open marriage or divorce, and I love this woman. So I got the timeline correct. Your wife announces it's poly or it's over and then runs off for a weekend with some other guy before you had really any time to process that. That is not okay. That is not how you do. Sometimes people have to do the ultimatum. Sometimes people have to say, look, I can only stay in this marriage or this relationship if it's an open one. I'm sorry. People will then agree to be poly or open under duress. And that is, in a small way, coercive. And coercion is always bad and coerced consent isn't consent. But there are a lot of people out there who are willing to pay that price of admission to save the marriage, to save the relationship. They're willing to try, to attempt the open marriage or the polyamorous relationship. Puds, we've called them. I was just talking about them with the previous caller. People who are poly under duress. People who are poly under duress and remain poly under duress, if they stay puds for long, that usually means the marriage or the relationship is over. There's a lot of people who are in successful, happy, polyamorous relationships where nobody's a pud anymore because polyamory ended up working, not just for the person who asked for it, but for the person who acquiesced to it. You say you don't have anyone to talk to. That's a problem. You definitely need someone to talk to if you're in this situation besides the person who issued you the ultimatum. You guys need a couples counselor. I would encourage you to go to asect.org, A-A-S-E-C-T.org, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Find a sex-positive, kink-positive, poly-positive couples counselor in your area that you two can go to and somebody can referee this moment, this transition in your relationship and in your marriage. You should also reach out online on anonymous forums or to anyone you know. If you know someone who has an open relationship, reach out to that person and tell them the situation that you're in and ask them, as awkward as it might be, to ask or to be asked if you can just sit with them and talk about how their open relationship works. The person, whoever, most responsible for helping you adjust to, quote unquote, as you described it, your new life is your wife. She needs to be very considerate at this moment of your feelings. She needs to behave right now as unselfishly as possible. If what she wants is for the marriage to survive the transition to openness or polyamory when she is imposing that on you, that means Baby fucking steps and I'm sorry, leaving you alone for a weekend right after announcing to you that it was open or it was over is not considerate. It is 
selfish. Selfish AF, as the kids might say until they hear me saying it, at which point they probably stop saying it. Selfish as fuck. She can't do that. You know, in her head, she had already made the transition. There's probably a long time in between realizing she was going to have to issue that ultimatum and the issuing of the ultimatum. And during that time, during the gap between the gotta say this and having said it, she really began to conceive of herself and your marriage in a very different way. You haven't had the opportunity to reconceive of your marriage. You're doing that now. She needs to back the fuck up and join you where you're at now and walk with you slowly to where she'd like to be and where she'd like you to be if she's interested in the marriage surviving. Just something you two need to process. Not with a faggot with a podcast, although I like to think I'm helpful around the edges and margins, but with a couples counselor that you can visit again and again and again and really unpack what she wants, what you need to feel comfortable with what she wants and how you guys get to this new place together where you're both poly, but neither of you is a pud. Hi, I am a 21 year old female, straight female. um, And I have a question about a relationship that just ended. We weren't technically dating, which was fine. That's how I wanted it. But one day he just packed up my stuff in his room and told me to leave his house. I was pretty much living at his house and was just like, leave. And it was in a really fragile point in my life. A really close family friend is terminal. And he knew that, texted me, said my stuff was packed up in his house. Really not a nice way to do things. But with my stuff, I had a painting hung up at his house that my cousin had given me. Um, It was too big for my house, and I was at his house all the time anyway. So we just hung it up there, and now he refuses to give it back to me. Well, he actually, his specific words were, he'll think about it. So he makes my blood boil, and I don't really like talking to him anyway. So I don't really know what to do. I really love the painting, and it's from my family member. I don't really know why he would want to keep it anyway. So I was just wondering what your opinion would be, what you think I should do. So you weren't technically dating because you didn't want to technically date this guy, but you were, not so technically, living at his house. And something happened and he needed you or wanted you to leave. And he was kind of a dick about it, it seems. I feel like maybe we don't have all the information we need to fully understand what went on here and who wronged who or if there were wrongs on both sides, but he asked you to move out and it's his house and that's his right. He doesn't have a right to hold on to your painting if that belongs to you and it is your property. You can call the police. You can take him to small claims court. You can sue to get your painting back. You can avail yourself of the same courts the producers for Judge Judy swooped down upon and yank people out of that system and pull them into the TV courtroom system instead. That's a real thing, small claims court. You can take them to small claims court and try to get your painting back. If you weren't, and I suspect maybe you weren't, paying rent while you were living with him, he may feel justified in holding on to your painting or seizing this little bit of property of yours as payment. Perhaps payment you promised him that you never came through with, or payment he never demanded from you and you never promised him and now he feels entitled to and that would not be okay if he was letting you 
live there rent free, perhaps as a solid that he was doing for you because you were in distress, he can't retroactively decide that you should have been paying him rent all along and then keep your property as payment. Again, that's what small claims court is for. I think you should take him there. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode number 600. The girl whose boyfriend wouldn't go down on her because he was scared or didn't like it or something like that. I was that guy. I can tell you I hadn't done it or I tried once or twice and didn't think I was good at it. And I think because of that, I didn't like it. Then a girlfriend had a book about it by her bed and I picked it up and started reading it one night. And that got me really into trying things that were in the book. And it was great bedside reading. It would make me read something and I would want to try it on her. And now I'm really into giving oral and it's great. So pick up a book, read it. Hi, Dan. This is a uh, response to episode 600. There was the lady uh, from the sauna, but in your responding to her, you mentioned that there were a particular cab that you got into that would <laughs> give you a boner. Well, anecdotally, my husband and all of his school friends, there were a chair in their school assembly um, that they were required to sit in for assembly every morning. And, um, and it would give the whole lot of them bonus. And I think perhaps what you were feeling was not a neurological connection that had been made, but actually there were just a partic- particular shapes of chairs that have that effect on some men. Um, but uh, it seemed to be uh, in consensus amongst them that this is what would happen if they sat on a particular type of chair that was available. Um, so there would be a scramble at the beginning of assembly for the couple of chairs that weren't in that situation. So that perhaps gives you an answer to a question you've had <laughs> since then. Um, you're definitely not turned on by cabs. Hi, I'm calling about the woman who was starting off a new DS relationship with her boyfriend or her dom. As a straight woman who is a submissive and has been in the kink scene for not too long, I can tell you, you are in high demand and a good dom will do to you what you want to be done to you. Doms want to please just like submissives want to please get away from this guy. He's no good. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump, my dirty little porn film festival, is coming to Providence. It's going to be at the Columbus Theater on May 5th. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets and to find out when Hump is coming to Hump, a city near you. Also, while you're online, go to itmfa.org and get yourself some Impeach the Motherfucker already. T-shirts, hats, buttons, lapel pins, stickers. All proceeds benefit the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Scott on Twitter at I-D-U-A-N-E-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.